Good morning, everyone. Before we begin uh, our study of God's Word in 2 Kings chapter 9, just a quick word on the events of this past week and the overturn of Roe v. Wade. This is uh, a step forward in the battle for the protection of the life of the unborn that our church, our congregation, has been praying for and fasting for for many years. Each January we gather together in a special time of fasting and prayer for the protection of the unborn. And so we rejoice and we thank God for this decision. And yet we know that this is just a continued uh, struggle towards the protection of life in our nation, for this only means that the legal um, decisions about abortion are now turned over to the states. And that means that there are some states in which abortion will be highly restricted, uh, and there are others in which it will continue to be open even to the point of birth. And so we continue to pray, we continue to fast, we continue to call out to the Lord, for we know that the battle isn't primarily a legal battle, but it's a battle for hearts, that we would be a nation that would love life, that we would love children, that we would love all of those involved. And so we continue to pray, we pray uh, that the threats and the vandalism that we have already seen in our community against the Blue Ridge Pregnancy Center would stop and that those who had committed those crimes would be caught. We continue to pray and support uh, those who are fighting this battle on behalf of the unborn. And so I want to call out to the Lord in prayer uh, at this time uh, for uh, for this season. Oh Lord, we come to you now and we praise you for you are the God who has created life. You have created us in your own image. Male and female, you have created us after your image. And we see from your word and it is plain to us from our own Lord observations that life begins at the very moment of conception. And that its value and its worth is not in its strength or its intelligence, but its value and worth is based and rooted in the fact that every human being is created in your image and therefore is sacred and must be protected and must be given all of the rights of anyone else. And so we pray, O God, with thanksgiving in our hearts that there has been a movement forward at the federal level, Lord, that the unborn might continue to have further and further protection. And we pray specifically, Lord, for our state. We pray for our governor, for Governor Youngkin, that he would lead our state in ways that are pleasing to you. We pray, Lord, for the 2023 elections for the General Assembly. We ask, O Lord, that those who would seek justice for the unborn and protection for their life would come to places of power that even here in our state, Lord, that the most vulnerable would be protected. We pray, O God, that you would 
bring to those who have been victims of abortion, that you would bring to them justice. We pray, O Lord, for those who are among us and in our families and in our community, O Lord, that have had abortions. Oh, would they know the forgiveness and the love of Christ and the restoration that is found in Him. And O God, we pray that You would give to us great faith and trust in You, that we would know that ultimately this battle is not a battle against flesh and blood, but it is a spiritual battle that is to be waged according to Your Word and prayer. And so would you set us about such a work that we would continue, O God, to pray, that we would continue, O Lord, to move forward, that all life might be protected. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings chapter 9. Over the last several months, really since the beginning of the year, we have been studying the lives of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. And we have been studying it within the context of the conflict of the kingdoms of man and of God. The kingdom of man was seen in the establishment of the dynasty of Omri. Omri was a king that was raised up, that came to power in Israel and established his house and, his son, and passed on the kingdom to his sons, particularly Ahab, and brought great evil upon the people of the Lord. But the Lord, in response to that, brought forth his prophets to speak his word that his kingdom might be established over and against the kingdom of man. Today, we see the downfall of the kingdom of Omri and the victory of the kingdom of God against the kingdom of Omri. In our passage for this morning, in 2 Kings chapter 9, we will see a lot of violence, we'll see a lot of vengeance, and yet what we will see is that in this conflict of kingdoms, those who would follow the Lord must trust that God Himself will enact His justice, that we might love our enemies. So here now, the word of the Lord 2 Kings chapter 9. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to the inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee, do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house, 
And the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of Israel, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Bashaw, the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow in his talk. And they said, That is not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on his bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead against Haziel, king of Syria. But King Jehoram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. So Jehu said, If this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, saying, the messenger reached them, but is not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again the watchman reported, He reached them, but is not coming back. And his driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he is driving furiously. Joram said, Make ready. And they made ready his chariot. And then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu, and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying, Ahaziah, treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his, his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Jer Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. 
For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah the king of Judah saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan. And Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gore, which is by Iblim. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. And when they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. And the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel. So that no one can say, this is Jezebel. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to you now and we come to your word. And we ask, O Lord, that you would teach us of your vengeance. That we would not just pass by it. That we would not just tolerate it. But that by your word and by your spirit, that we might learn to love your vengeance as we love you. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Herbert Zofke was 95 years old when he was arrested and went on trial for a crime that he had committed 72 years earlier. Now, some might think that there's no reason to take a man 95 years old to trial for a crime that was committed so long ago. He's an old man. Why not just let this pass? And yet, the people of Germany, where Zofka's crimes were committed, were not just willing to look the other way in this case, because Zofka was tried for accessory to murder for more than 3,000 people. You see, Zofka was a member of the SS during World War II, and he served in the concentration camp of Auschwitz in 1944, And he is alleged to have known and willingly participated in the death of innocent men, women, and children. Of the most notable of his victims was 
and Frank, who died at Auschwitz while he served there. And yet, his crimes were committed so long ago. Should he be charged if he is found guilty? Should he be punished? He is not a threat to anyone anymore. He's 95 years old. Should we not, as Christians, to seek to forgive people who have committed such atrocities? When Jesus was going to the cross, did he not call out in prayer, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do? Isn't forgiveness and not vengeance the virtue that we are called to follow as God's people? Yet we also understand that it's wrong not to punish the evildoer for their crimes. The book of Proverbs tells us, for example, he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. You see, while there is a need to forgive those who sin against us personally, our forgiveness of them does not preclude the need for justice and for vengeance to be brought against their wickedness. And in our passage for this morning, we encounter much violence, much vengeance against the evildoers, and it might offend us a little bit, we might be ashamed of the blood and the gore that we read about in this text. And yet what we see is that our text is calling us to love the vengeance of God. Because God's vengeance is the very ground of His love and forgiveness. Now the first reason that we are called upon to love the vengeance of God is because our God is described in His Word as a God of vengeance. And if we are to love the Lord our God, we can't just love some aspects of His character and leave out other aspects. We have to love all that He is. And the Word of God makes it clear that vengeance is part of His character. Our call to worship this morning from Psalm 91 says, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, judge of the earth, repay the proud what they deserve. In Exodus 34, we read about God as He reveals Himself that He will by no means clear the guilty, but that He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It is clear that God will bring vengeance upon those who break His law. Every transgression will be punished. Leviticus 26, And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant, says the Lord. And in Deuteronomy, He says, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. And this vengeance is what is occurring in our passage for this morning. Why does the Lord call forth His prophet to anoint this man, Jehu? What is the purpose? Well, look at verse 7 of our text again. It says, And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, 
so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. Why has the Lord anointed Jehu? Well, He has anointed him to bring vengeance against the dynasty of Omri. For Ahab and Jezebel have broken the covenant of God, and it is God's character to take vengeance against those who break His covenant law. For Jezebel slaughtered the prophets of the Lord. And at this point, you may not understand why the Lord's vengeance is good news. We may not understand why we must love God's anger against sin, yet at the very least we must see that our God is a God who seeks vengeance, seeks justice against sin. And therefore, if we love God, we must love His vengeance. The next reason that we need to love God's vengeance is because vengeance means justice for the afflicted and oppressed. We live in a time in in our country, for the most part, where Christians meet very little opposition. And yet, oppression of God's people has been the norm throughout history. We live in a unique time. We must understand that we are in a place in history that is not the norm for those who would follow after the Lord. And this time of peace may not last very long for us. It is a great blessing, and we should pray that the Lord continues His blessings on us and upon our land. And yet one thing that our current situation does is it blinds us to the blessing of God's vengeance against for those who are unjustly oppressed. Earlier in our study of the lies of Elijah and Elisha, we read about a man named Naboth, if you remember. And he owned a vineyard that was adjacent to the royal palace in Jezreel. And when he would not agree to sell his land to King Ahab and Jezebel, the two of them conspired against Naboth and had him and his entire family murdered so that they could take possession of his land. But in our text, we see that the vengeance of God through his anointed Jehu brings about justice for Naboth and his sons. Look at verses 25 through 26. Jehu said to Bekar, his aide, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him, as surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. You see, we must learn to love the vengeance of God because it means justice for the oppressed. It means that those who have have used their power to subject the weak will receive their just reward. One of the things that kids have no shame in is rejoicing when the bad guy gets their due. 
They think it's great when the Acme bomb blows up in Wiley Coyote's face. They cheer when Mickey Mouse drops the anvil on Pete's head. As adults, we go, sometimes we withhold, but when children see justice brought forth on those who are clearly in the wrong, they rejoice. And so should we. For we should love the vengeance of God against the wicked. In the book of Revelations, chapter 6, we read about those saints in heaven who were martyred for their faith. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for their witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Is it wrong for the oppressed and for the abused to cry out for justice against those who have treated them so poorly? Is it wrong to desire justice, to cry out, How long, O Lord, will you not judge your suffering church and release her from the oppression of the evil one? How long, O Lord, will you withhold your vengeance against those who murder your very own people? How long, O Lord, will you allow such injustice to continue on the earth? Christian, if we love justice, and if we would seek to see the oppressed released, then we must love the vengeance of our God. When we read of the death of Joram and of Jezebel, we should rejoice even as the Proverbs tell us. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Our Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice with Him, O heavens. Bow down to Him, all gods. For He avenges the blood of His children and takes vengeance on His adversaries. He repays those who hate Him and cleanses His people's land. Now we must be clear, we're not talking about rejoicing over the misfortune of your personal enemy. We're not talking about a morbid fascination with the gruesomeness of death. We're talking about seeing justice served and the oppressed freed. We're talking about the punishment of the wicked And all throughout the book of Revelation, we find that the heavens rejoice as the Lord brings about His righteous vengeance on the evil of Satan's kingdom. Revelation 18. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. You see, we must love the vengeance of God Because His vengeance means justice for the oppressed. Now anyone who was around Christian circles in the late 70s and early 80s was probably subjected to movies and books about the rapture and the second coming of Christ that were meant to, in many ways, scare you into becoming a Christian. I don't mean to disparage what the makers of these movies were trying to accomplish. They are seeking to spread a knowledge of God's Word and awareness of His second coming. But I think that 
Unfortunately, some of the depictions of Christ's second coming made many people, and Christians in particular, fearful about the return of the Lord. They fear what it will be like, and so they don't want to be around to see this return of Christ. And yet, the return of Christ should not be a day of fear for those who are in Christ. For the return of Christ is our great hope. And yet, if you do not love the vengeance of God, then the second coming will be a fearful day. This is the third reason we need to learn to love the vengeance of God, because it is our hope of an eternal inheritance. The Apostle Paul, writing to a persecuted church in Thessalonica, explains this about the coming of Christ. He says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. For they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. O Christian, our great hope is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 19, we are given a picture of what it will be like. And it will be much like the return of Jehu to Samaria. For he will come on a horse to bring vengeance upon all those who have rebelled against the kingdom of God. Jehu, the anointed, the king, rides to take vengeance. And all who meet Him along the way are called upon to join Him and to join His kingdom and to oppose all of those who rebelled against God. A picture of what it will be like when Jesus the King, Jesus the Anointed, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ returns to establish His kingdom. Christian, this is our great hope in a world of injustice. Why do you think that there will be no more sin in eternity? Why do you think that there will be no more pain? Why do you think that there will be no more death? Because our great and just God will drive from His creation all that is evil and wicked and unjust. And the last enemy to be defeated will be death itself. And the full fury of His vengeance will come against sin and its wicked effects so that we might no longer suffer under their cruelty. We have given in to the false view of God and of the world that makes us think that in the end all will just be forgotten and forgiven. God will not allow the enemies of His kingdom to remain for pain and sickness and injustice and death will all be destroyed. And this is our great hope that God will not allow evil to continue to run rampant over this world, but that He will destroy evil and He will establish His eternal kingdom. We must love the vengeance of God 
Because His vengeance will establish the new creation order in which we will finally be free from Satan and will live forever. The fourth and final reason that we see in our text that we must love God's vengeance is because God's vengeance means forgiveness. In Numbers 35, the Lord tells the people of Israel how those who are guilty of murder and the guilt that is brought upon His people will be removed from the land of Israel. He says, No atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, that innocent blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You see, when the sin of murder is committed, the only way for the land to be clean of guilt is by the shedding of the blood of the murderer. Atonement, cleansing, can only occur when the blood of an offender is shed. And so the land remains polluted until vengeance has been enacted. The book of Hebrews explains and expands on this concept and says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now we need to make sure that we understand the concept properly because we often misunderstand sacrifice and blood atonement. Whose blood needs to be shed for sin to be cleansed? The blood of the offender. The blood of the wrongdoer. For the wages of sin is death. How is the debt of sin paid? It is paid by death. How is the stain of sin removed? It is removed by the shedding of the blood of the wrongdoer. Through vengeance. Bulls and goats and lambs were used as substitutes. But substitutes for who? For those who had sinned. But the reason that blood has to be shed to forgive sin is because the wages of sin is death and therefore vengeance must be taken against the sinner. Therefore Jezebel had to be killed. Therefore she had to be thrown off the wall of her palace. Therefore the blood had to be splattered upon the wall. It's the same reason that the lamb had to be slaughtered and its blood splattered on the walls of the temple because forgiveness of sin only occurs when the blood of the guilty party is shed. Vengeance must occur or there is no cleansing from sin. And it is the vengeance of God against sin that secures our forgiveness in Christ. You see... If you do not love the vengeance of God, then you cannot love the cross of Jesus Christ. For it was there at the cross that the full vengeance of God against sin was poured out, but not against the offender, but against His own Son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus took upon Himself the sin of His church. And He became one with those who deserve the full vengeance of God. But now, because He has offered Himself up, we are not the recipients of God's vengeance, but through faith in Christ, 
We are forgiven because Christ has endured the vengeance of God and has shed His blood on our behalf. I think that we do not like to talk about the vengeance of God because we don't want to deal with the fact that it is us. It is us. It's not somebody else. We want to think about God's vengeance against somebody else. It's against them. It's against those people. But the reality of the Word of God is that the vengeance of God should come against us. We are the guilty party. We are the one who have rebelled against Him. But through faith in Jesus Christ, God's vengeance, which should be against us, was turned away from us and turned upon His Son, Jesus Christ, and He shed His blood so that our blood would not have to be shed. And that we might receive forgiveness. This is our hope. For in Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our sins. It is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we come to love the vengeance of God. For in His vengeance the Lord has secured our forgiveness. As we are united to Christ through faith, His death becomes our death and His life becomes our life. He becomes our substitute so that the penalty of our sin is enacted not against us, but against Him. And the blood of the new covenant was shed so that the vengeance of God would result in the forgiveness of His people. Therefore, we must love God's vengeance because in Christ, His vengeance means our full forgiveness. But even so, you might say, isn't it wrong for us to love vengeance? Doesn't the Word of God teach us that we are to love our enemies? Doesn't Jesus teach us that we should turn the other cheek? Doesn't He teach us that we should forgive others even as we have been forgiven? All of this loving the vengeance of God doesn't sound like the Christian way to me. It doesn't sound like what Jesus taught us about loving peace. And of course, we should not take this the wrong way. Personal vengeance is wrong. We are not to seek to enact vengeance against our personal enemies. If someone picks on you, If your brother takes away your toy unjustly, you are not to seek vengeance against him. If you are cut off in traffic, it's not according to your power that you are to seek vengeance. If you've been abused by a relative or by a neighbor, it's not your place to seek out vengeance against them. You're cruelly treated by a stranger. This is not saying that you need to seek out vengeance. For you are called to love. But that is not because justice should not be served. And it is not because vengeance should not be taken. But vengeance is to be enacted by those authorities that God has established. God has established the governments of this world to be His agents of vengeance against those who do evil. The Apostle Paul tells us of the governments of this world, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for the government is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It is the governments of this world that are established to enact earthly justice on the wrongdoer, 
If you are being abused, if you are being hurt, if there is an injustice being done, then you are called to seek out the proper vengeance. To go to those who have authority in your life. To go to your parents and tell them of what is happening. To go to your teacher. To go to your pastor. To go to the police. For God has given authority to those over you to protect you and to act as His agents of vengeance against the evildoer. And if you are in authority, you must. You must act to bring justice to those who would seek to harm those under your care. The President of the United States has no right to turn the other cheek when American citizens are killed by terrorists. The police have no right to turn the other cheek when someone steals your car. You have no right to turn the other cheek if someone is abusing your child. The Supreme Court had no right to enshrine abortion for the past 48 plus years. And states have no right to allow this murder of the next generation to continue. For it is upon their shoulders that justice would be established in our land. And the government of Germany had no right to turn and look the other way when a member of the SS turned up 70 years later. God has established authorities to enact vengeance against sin because through proper vengeance, life and peace and forgiveness are secure. And in that vein, Paul tells us why we must not seek vengeance on our own. For he says in Romans 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do you see Paul's logic here? It's so important that you see his point. Why are we not to seek vengeance on our own? Not because vengeance is wrong, but because vengeance belongs to the Lord. There will be vengeance against the evildoer. Justice will be enacted against those who have abused and harmed and even murdered. But that justice and vengeance belongs to God and not to you. Therefore, we must love the vengeance of God because it frees us to love our enemy. It frees us from the burden of vengeance against the wrongdoer and allows us to bring to them the message of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It is no secret that the conflict of kingdoms is heating up in our nation. But the way we fight is not with force of arms, but through prayer and the proclamation of forgiveness in Christ Jesus. For vengeance is not ours, but it is the Lord. May we therefore love God's vengeance because it means justice for the oppressed and salvation for all of those who would turn in faith to Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.
Almighty God, would you give to us such faith in you and the justice that was enacted upon Christ and the cross that we would not seek to avenge ourselves, but that we would trust you and that we would go forth in love and kindness in this world, proclaiming a message of forgiveness of sin. O Lord God, would you lead and guide and direct us. For this is not our lasting kingdom, but we seek the city that is to come. O God, may our hope be there where your justice reigns forever and ever. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.